The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, WeWork's public debut. Finally. The WeWork saga, the roller coaster ride, finally culminating in what else? Us back. How it happened with CEO Sandeep Mithrani. 18 months ago, if you told me that WeWork could sell software, I would have said no. With the pandemic, we were able to take and white label what we do for a living. SoftBank's multi-billion dollar bet on co-working remotely. WeWork executive chairman and SoftBank executive Marcelo Clore. Two years ago, the value of WeWork was zero. The company was on the verge of bankruptcy. The fact that we've taken from zero to evaluation circa eight, nine billion dollars in two years is great. And Tesla's record quarter. Former Tesla president, also a former Lyft executive, John McNeil. What was most impressive to me is the gross margins. Three times the gross margin level at GM and about six times the gross margin level at Ford. And they seem to be less affected by supply chain issues. Those big stories plus the Bitcoin ETF ripple effects. I mean, it's pretty unbelievable that we are talking about coal and Bitcoin together. It's Thursday, October 21st, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Brian Sullivan. Joe is off today, and Andrew is live at the New York Stock Exchange. It's dark, it's cold, but you've got a really good reason for being there, Andrew. You want to explain? Thanks, Becky. Uh, we are at the New York Stock Exchange. WeWork is going public today, and it's doing it via SPAC set to make its belated debut here at the exchange later this morning. It is perhaps one of the most dramatic business stories of the last several years. Of course, a company that was once worth $47 billion about to go public. That public uh, offering scuttled back in 2019. SoftBank coming in uh, to save the day, investing in that company, uh, now has something on the order of 16 to $17 billion in that company. Lots of folks thought it was left for dead, especially as the pandemic came around and uh, people stopped going to the office. But in fact, perhaps the opposite has happened. Uh, The company uh, becoming a major turnaround story of sorts, uh, going and listing today through this SPAC. Uh, We're going to be talking uh, to the uh, CEO of WeWork a little bit later, Sandeep Mathrani, and the executive chair um, from SoftBank, Marcelo Clare. Uh, who has spearheaded this investment. Um, it, is, uh, it is a spectacular story, folks, and uh, many a documentary has already been made about it, and many a documentary may be made about the future of this company, Becky. You know, Andrew, it, it, just talking about, it, it seems like so long ago, because we've all been through so much the last couple of years, and there was such a huge buildup around WeWork the first time around. This one kind of snuck right in there. It, it, it has snuck right in there, and I think it snuck right in there in terms of actually what the business is, in part because, as we all thought, the pandemic would have wrecked a business like this. 
Uh, in a way, almost the opposite has happened. Uh, large companies like Microsoft and others have actually started to take subscriptions effectively for their employees at WeWorks so that in this new hybrid world, instead of necessarily going to headquarters or going to uh, a major office, you might go for a day or a morning to a WeWork. Uh, the company has slashed uh, costs. Uh, they've, they've pulled about, two, I think, $2 billion annually virtually out, out of the company. And um, right now, while I should say the company is still losing money, uh, it appears there's a path for profitability. We're going to talk to them uh, this morning about that. Uh, and, of course, I should note, um, for Adam Newman, a payday this morning. He still owns about 11% of the company, uh, so perhaps about a billion dollars. Uh, and we're hearing that he may be throwing a um, little little breakfast party uh, for himself and uh, a bunch of <laughs> old WeWorkers uh, when, uh, when the gavel goes down and the market opens this morning. So we're going to keep our eye on that as well. It does tell you, though, this is a story about a return, but it's also about a much lower valuation than, than we had talked about it. Yes. Going from $47 billion to, you just said, maybe a billion dollars for 11% of the company. Um, that's right. a, still a significant haircut, but maybe they can make a go of this and make it really happen. Well, and look, for, for SoftBank, it's going to be a long road, a very, very long road to get their money back. Um, and this was a company that was on the cusp of bankruptcy. I think there's no question. And then there were con- uh, questions about conflicts of interest at one point. Adam Newman had bought a number of buildings that were being used to lease back uh, to WeWork and the like. And so um, the, 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 it's, as I said, it's a dramatic story, and hopefully uh, we'll get more of that story throughout the morning. How, I'd love to, Andrew, how does Newman still, Newman, how does Newman still own that big of a chunk in the company? If you listen to the excellent podcast that we crash, you know the story in and out, you've written about it. Right. How did it all shake out from an equity perspective, the rights holders, that he still owns that size of a chunk of the company? You know, it's interesting because we all reported about all the problems of the company, and, and clearly there were, there were issues of governance and so many different things that people were raising about the prospects of the company. Um, it's worth pointing out, though, that you know, there have not been... Um, allegations, or at least uh, there have not been cases brought about fraud with the numbers, or that there wasn't a real business underneath there. And so when SoftBank came and said they wanted to buy the company, to some degree, he had clearly some leverage, enough leverage to keep a major stake in the company. And so that is how, in truth, he has, he has been a beneficiary. Uh, there were a number of suitors at that time looking to buy the company, obviously at much lower valuations. And um, maybe to his credit, uh, as a dealmaker for himself, uh, he succeeded. Also worth noting, he played a little bit of a behind-the-scenes role actually in the SPAC itself. If you look through some of the SEC filings for this SPAC with BOEX, uh, he participated in perhaps maybe the earliest phone call about putting this, this very deal together that's allowed this to happen. So uh, he's still playing this, this behind-the-scenes role of sorts and, in fact, has rights to attend board meetings through next year. <laughs> so they have to, like, allow him, because people there don't want him there, but he had to negotiate the right to still attend board meetings? I mean, that, that, that would be the question. I think what back, is, what I is think back in 2019, I think back in... I'm not, I'm not sure they necessarily would love to have him. We'll talk to, uh, to the CEO yeah. about that. Um, but I do think they have a... From what I understand, there's a working relationship. They talk to each other, and um, clearly... Um, 
we're sitting here. Something right did happen. Let's get a check on Bitcoin this morning, too. After the cryptocurrency jumped to a new high, hitting nearly $67,000 yesterday. Crypto-connected stocks are reaping the benefits. Uh, Shares of Stronghold Digital Mining jumping 52% in its first day of trading yesterday. That company mines Bitcoin using heat that's generated from a process process that removes toxins from waste coal. The stock priced at $19 and it closed at $28.90, giving it a market cap of about $1.3 billion. Coinbase and MicroStrategy are each up more than 30% just over the last month. And guys, we've been talking about that new Bitcoin futures-based ETF that started trading this week, that being part of the reason. But J.P. Morgan also pointing out, look, a big part of the reason that you've seen the increase in Bitcoin prices is because you're talking about inflation. It's on everybody's mind. Uh, We talked about it with Paul Tudor Jones yesterday. He said he thinks it's the biggest issue facing society. I do think we're moving into an increasingly digitized world. Clearly, there's a place for crypto, and clearly it's winning the race against gold at the moment, right? So I would think that would also be a very good inflation hedge. It would be my preferred one over gold at the moment. Don't you love the fact that we've just tied a Bitcoin story, the future is digital, to a coal story? Well, we that's, literally... for the, all the arguments about Bitcoin mining being dirty, this is the, the storyline that says, okay, it's not dirty if you're doing it to clean coal and remove the waste from that is interesting but but does that increase demand for coal we've already seen coal prices up about two i can't believe we're talking about coal prices by the way buy the railroads andrew and build a hotel on baltic i mean it's pretty unbelievable that we are talking about coal and bitcoin together and just coming from the milken conference in la you talk to people about crypto of course everybody talked about it and this idea that i said you know what inning are we in it was a lazy question on my part and this guy said we're not even at the first batter of the first inning because once the institutions come in if you're a family office of a billionaire right maybe adam newman's family office and you want to buy 50 million in ether you're not doing it on one of the retail exchanges that exists now the institutional infrastructure for crypto isn't even built yet Coal is still the interesting story, though. I mean, did you see that this is the first time in something like 14 years that demand for coal in the United States has gone up, that they've had to mine more of it? And that's because power plants are turning to coal because natural gas is so expensive. So, you know, all of our thoughts that we can wean ourselves from this, you got to remember everything is price sensitive. And when prices go up, people will shift to dirtier, um, dirtier forms. Well, there has to be heat in the winters, particularly yep. in Europe and in Asia. And that's a, that's a big concern that if they can't get the liquefied natural gas, they may need to go back to coal. We're seeing Europe in a desperate race for coal because they've had some issues with power generation otherwise. I just think and it's India fascinating, Andrew, to connect. We connect. Usually I connect coal with a Christmas stocking. Now I'm connecting coal with crypto. I, I just think it's, a, it's just it's just it's kind of a fascinating turn of events. CNBC has confirmed reports that PayPal is in late-stage talks to buy social media company Pinterest. Pinterest shares were halted twice during yesterday's session before closing up more than 12 percent. The potential price tag of $70 a share would value Pinterest at about $39. And check out that move that you saw yesterday. When Pinterest went public back in April of 2019, it was valued at a little over $10 billion. Pinterest right now um, down by just 1 percent to $61.98. Andrew? It would be a very interesting deal for PayPal. I mean, to it's think about what right? they could do with that business. It's a very, very different business. Yeah. They've gone into different I mean, they, they bought Honey, if you remember, and they've yeah. talked about going into these types of spaces. 
Pinterest isn't a typical social network, so the good news is you're not going to be confronting some of the regulatory pressures the, that I think nice Facebook's in the, of the world. <laughs> it's the nice social network. But then the question, of course, is the nice social network may be harder to make, you know, huge money social network. But I think the idea would be that you're going to create e-commerce on that platform, more and more e-commerce on that platform. Which is it's, weird, though, because I don't know anybody who doesn't happens. have PayPal already. I mean, it, that was the one thing. Like, I feel like if they did the deal, they're going back to the future because they came off of eBay, which initially started as basically like, I want to sell Andrew my skis, right? It right. kind of became right. a, a marketplace. If they do this, are they kind of buying back or a, an eBay competitor? Isn't that all a of a M&A, essentially? Yeah, like the bankers win. Add things, get rid of them. Add things, get rid of them. That's a business model. Yep. And a good one. Build it up, tear it down, and build it up again. Right. Next on Squawk Pod. It's here. WeWork is finally going public. Rising from the ashes twice. How they resurrected a co-working company while we were all stuck at home. CEO Sandeep Mithrani. What we did to the pandemic was to correct the cost structure, right-size the company, cut about $1.9 billion of cost. And the big bet on rescuing it from the brink of bankruptcy. SoftBank COO and WeWork Executive Chairman Marcelo Clore. We got here in a different road than what we anticipated, but we're here. And we're here celebrating with all of our employees, which is marvelous. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. It's here, the day most of Wall Street thought would never come, WeWork's public debut. As you heard earlier, and as I'm sure you remember, it's been a wild ride for this company, its employees, its investors, and its eccentric and arguably erratic founder, Adam Newman. Speaking of, remember back in 2019 when the company first filed to go public and we all dug through the S1 document? It was sort of the beginning of the end. At the time, the company was valued at, oh, I don't know, try $47 billion. But the S1 filed in August of that year raised some red flags about profitability and a bunch of other things. And then Adam Newman's behavior raised some more red flags, like smoking weed on a private jet or talking about layoffs with employees and then serving them tequila shots. So anyway, WeWork's original 2019 IPO was delayed a month after they announced it. And then we all started focusing on Newman's leadership, which 
wasn't so much unorthodox as it was what his backers eventually deemed just completely inappropriate. He stepped down, although not without some convincing. This was on our TV broadcast two years ago when that happened. That's unbelievable. It's unbelievable because you're paying, you're effectively paying him twice. It was a mess. The near $2 billion golden parachute that SoftBank offered Adam Newman to step aside was honestly just a small fraction of the money it poured into WeWork to rescue it. That $47 billion valuation had dropped closer to five in just a few months, and SoftBank had lost billions, taking an 80% stake in the company just to keep it afloat. Two years later, in March of this year, WeWork announced its grand SPAC plan, and CEO Sandeep Mithrani sat down with us to explain. We hope to get to profitability by the end of this year, 2021. In those two years, Mathrani worked with executive chairman and SoftBank COO, Marcelo Clore, to restructure the company into something that was worth all the work it was to save it. Today, we're looking at a leaner, humbler WeWork. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin kicking off the debut interview. We get right to our next big interview of the hour. You can hear the noise. WeWork is uh, going public today on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol We. You can. I, we're gonna, it's going to be a long interview. We're going to get to be able to hear each other. It is the result of a SPAC transaction with Boex Acquisition Corp. It's also the culmination now of a years-long process to reach the public markets. And joining us right now live at the corner of Wall and Broad Streets in Lower Manhattan, WeWork CEO Sandy Mathurani and Executive Chairman Marcelo Corre. Congratulations to you. This is uh, one of the great turnaround stories. This was a company that, to be honest with you, I think a lot of people thought was going to be left for dead uh, before you made your investment in it. Uh, and then the pandemic, and who would have thought that we'd be sitting here right now for you, Marcelo, having done Bright Star, Sprint T-Mobile, and now this, it's quite something. But, but I'd ask you, when you made the investment in this company, and, and life is relative, we're going to talk about the SoftBank investment, did you think we would be here at this point this quickly? I mean, that was always the plan. When you make an investment, when there's a great vision, a great asset to be disrupted, the goal is to eventually have a public company. It was a, we got here in a different road than what we anticipated, but we're here and we're here celebrating with all of our employees, which is marvelous. We're going to talk about that road in just a second. But when he 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 was the one who recruited you to, to take this job. Did yeah, it was a decoy. He asked me to be a board member uh, on my first meeting. Uh, we met at Salesforce Tower in San Francisco. And then the following week, we actually met for dinner. And he said, would you be CEO? Without hesitation, I said yes. So Because why? You know, look, WeWork is an amazing brand. And if someone gives you a super brand uh, to, to, to turn around, you're going to have to say yes. Uh, it was always in demand. It was flexible space was in demand. So revenue was never a problem. Occupancy was never a problem. It had an upside-down cost structure. So for me, you know, to turn around a, you know, a brand uh, like WeWork was, it would be an honor, would be... A- the, the great irony of this story is actually that the pandemic might have actually accelerated your story and your growth, no? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the pandemic allowed two things to happen. One, it's all about flexibility. No one wants long-term leases. No one wants, everyone wants a turnkey project. That's one end. Second is we built the all-access card, which could never have happened if it wasn't for the pandemic, where people, you know, the ultimate of flexibility, come as you want, when you want. And the third leg is, who would have thought that we could actually sell software? You know, 18 months ago, if you told me that we could sell software, I would have said no. But the pandemic allowed our 
core business, which is to sell a desk, sell an office, sell a conference room, um, you know, we were able to take and white label what we do for a living. So the pandemic changed the business for us and made it top of mind to every CEO, CHRO, and CFO. So absolutely. Okay. Marcel, we talk about this as a turnaround story, but SoftBank is in for about $16 billion. Today, that value is worth about $5 billion. Do you see a way back to break even? We have to correct. We're not in at $16 billion. We're about $10 billion if you look at the equity contribution. The important thing is fair to say that two years ago, the value of WeWork was zero. The company was on the verge of bankruptcy. The company had run of cash. And the fact that we've taken from zero to evaluation circa $8, $9 billion in two years is great. Now the future is bright. Like Sandeep has said, you know, I'm just going to give you one data that you realize the power of WeWork. Second quarter, WeWork is less than 1% of all of London commercial real estate office space. We amounted for 37% of the leases. So that tells you that the right. future is bright. That tells you that people want a flexible workspace. People are using our all-access cards to go. I visited WeWorks in Brazil this week, full of people just testing different WeWorks. So we feel extremely good. We have a great plan with Sandeep. This is just one step in the, in the, in the as WeWork you know, journey. As so you we know, feel good about it. Masa-san has called this investment a mistake. Does he have a different view today? I think Massa is very excited. I, mean, I think it was a mistake in the way we executed investment. Now it's our job to make sure that this becomes another investment right. that generates the right return for SoftBank. And I feel extremely confident that we will achieve that. Sandeep, ex- explain to the, to, to the audience the path to profitability. This is a company that st- still hasn't, uh, still is losing money, but you think by 2022 it'll get there. Oh, for sure. Uh, you know, you've got to appreciate this company, as I mentioned earlier, had growing revenue and growing occupancy, an upside-down cost structure. And what we did to the pandemic was to correct the cost structure, right-size the company, cut about $1.9 billion of cost. So what we did was we designed the cost structure that should we just get back to the revenues we had in Q2 of last year, okay, which was $900 million, would be profitable. So this is not a situation where we haven't been there, we haven't been there on occupancy. And if you see what's happened, you know, Q2, Q3, you know, and of course going into Q4, revenues growing 10, 15%, you know, a quarter. Uh, and, you know, occupancy will get to the levels we were at Q1, Q2 last year, you know, sometime early next year. So we will be profitable. And this is before we had the all access product. The all access product, we have 32,000 members, gives us over $100 million right. of revenue a year. And this is before we launch and commercialize our, you know, our workplace management product. So we feel pretty comfortable that we'll get there next year. Marcelo, we've, talking, we've talked about this as a drama, in fact, a, a, a rise, a fall, and rise again story. Um, and one of the, the protagonists of the story is Adam Newman, uh, who apparently this morning uh, is throwing a bit of his own party, not here, uh, but uptown a little bit. With some perspective now, how do you assess Adam and his role in all of this? So, I mean, let's talk about the back. You know, Adam deserved credit. Adam was the visionary. Adam came up with the idea. SoFunk invested in the idea. And then the next chapter came to bring somebody like Sandeep who can basically execute an amazing turnaround plan. So everybody had an important role to play here. Adam Newman going forward, he's a shareholder. I believe he has rights to be a board observer, and we welcome anybody who comes up with ideas. 
at the end, you know, Sandeep is running the company. Sandeep has been the captain of this ship. Right. And I could not be more grateful for what Sandeep has accomplished in such a short period of time. So Adam is just another shareholder. He owns about 10% of the company. And one of the questions that people have, even to this day, is what kind of leverage he had at the time that he made the transaction with you to be able to keep that at a time when some people thought the company was, as you said, worth nothing. The story has to be told, right? Adam, as you know, had super majority shares, and he could make the decision to go to JP Morgan or to come with SoftBank. So at the end, he, they, for whatever reason, he had all the power, and Adam made a very wise decision, which is basically to trust SoftBank that had the company that has invested several billions on him, and it was our turn to pass the baton to give us the keys for us to continue the journey. So, you know, going forward, this is a publicly traded company, independent directors, independent CEO, and we're going to continue with this journey that still has a long, this is a long story to tell. You've said this is a story with drama. Sure, this is a story where a lot of people wrote documentary that it was the end of WeWork. Well, this comp the, the, the resistance, the persistence of these people is incredible. And this right. company is here, is stronger than ever. And no doubt that we're going to be celebrating many more milestones. Becky's got a question for you back at HQ. Hopefully you can hear it over the din of uh, all of your, your fans here. Hey, Sandeep, I, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the leases. Obviously, um, the pandemic changed and moved a lot over time, and I, I think it caught everybody a little off guard about how some of your your big company clients came in and wanted the flexibility of being able to have a WeWork space so that they could kind of move and, and bob and weave through the times of the pandemic. How, how long is your average lease at this point? And I just wonder how things change again once we come out the other side of the pandemic and companies maybe are able to have a more concrete plan about what they anticipate and what they expect. So, you know, the, uh, the enterprise clients, actually the lease term went up during the pandemic. So it's about 30 months. It's almost two and a half years. Uh, and if you think about our business in 2017, you know, where we had 90% of our leases month to month, today only 10% are month to month. Uh, and 90% have an average lease term of 15 months. But the enterprise clients you were just referring to is 30 months. Uh, so this resembles much more, you know, I would say from a 10-year perspective in apartment business uh, than it does uh, a hotel business, if you will, which is more short term. So the lease terms are about two and a half years. Can, can both of you speak to this sort of new future of work and the idea of hybrid work, not just here in the United States, but what you're seeing in other places around the world where cultures are different. We've talked about how in certain parts of the United States, a lot of people are already back to work or even never never stop going to work and how that's impacting the business and how you think that will change over time. I mean, I, I think, you know, the future has been going towards flexibility and hybrid for the last 20 years. This is not new. It's like in the pandemic, everything got accelerated. Uh, and if you think about pre-pandemic, you know, at least in the United States and in EMEA, and, you know, people went to work 65% of the time. 35% they were on vacation, they were from home, they were traveling. And so this whole thesis that it's going to go from 65% to 50% is not a big difference in reality. Right. Uh, and, and, and effectively, people always did that. They always went for quiet work to a library or they stayed home or, or went to different places. And it just got accelerated. And so the thesis of, you know, the, the norm that seems to be heading is three days on, two days off from where you can work from anywhere, you know, it's actually great for us, right? But are so, you a believer that longer term companies will actually demonstrably shrink their headquarters and that actually becomes a benefit to WeWork? Or do you think they keep their headquarters? I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing two very different things. Google, by the way, buying up an enormous amount of real estate, even here in New York. 
I think it's industry related. Okay, I think if your industry is growing, like the technology industry is growing, the fintechs are growing, they're absorbing space from us at scale because they're right. growing at fast. So their need for flexible spaces, they don't know how fast they're growing. Okay, and they don't want to make a mistake. Uh, and on the flip, you have traditional companies who are downsizing because the industry was downsizing for the last 20 years. It's not something unique. And they, again, don't know what the utilization would be. So sort of uncertainty becomes certainty for us. And if I just give a core relationship here, you know, this comes from my retail background more than anything else. You know, e-com was about 1% of retail sales in 2000 and 25% last year. And people think, you know, Flex is going to be its own channel of distribution. It's about 2% today, going to 20% by 2030. So I think flexibility will have its own channel of distribution. We spent some time together when you first took on this role, and you talked about software. This as a tech company, if you will, in the same way that Adam talked about it, but in a different way in, in many ways. You guys are now trying to also be in the SaaS business, and this goes to potentially how the market's going to value this company over the long term. How big a business can the software piece of this become? So give you an idea. Let's, let's start with every every disruptive business is a tech business because tech is what enables this business. When you kind of start booking a conference room or a room by the hour, by the day, by the month, that's basically utilizing technology to predict how many people are going to go to each building and so on. What we didn't come to realization is the demand for flex space is so large, enterprise customers are now setting up their businesses right. to be to be a flexible workspace. So they, they don't know how to do it. So they come to WeWork. We've been doing this for the last five years. We had an amazing software stack. And now we started selling software as a service in which we're starting to power a lot of the enterprise, a lot of the landlord. The growth in flexible workspace Commercial real estate, the largest asset class. Right. And what you're going to see is 30% of the commercial office real estate is going to be flexible. So we work has an enormous role, whether it's our building, right. whether we're managing somebody else's building, or we are powering those buildings utilizing our software. So software as a service will be a very important part of our business going forward. It's a high profitability business and high repeat business. I want to congratulate you uh, on this milestone. We do look forward to following uh, your progress and uh, the stock itself. Uh, Sandeep and Marcelo, thank you guys. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Next on Squawk Pod, breaking down Tesla's record quarter and the EV's road ahead. Former Tesla president John McNeil. They're turning these cars into recurring revenue machines. Rather than making a couple of thousand dollars when they sell the car once, they're going to make a couple of thousand dollars every year that that car is owned by selling insurance and infotainment. Squawk Pod will be right back. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. I'm Cameron Costa. This next story, all about Tesla. This week, the EV maker reported a slew of records for its third quarter. The financial results beat analyst expectations on the top and the bottom lines, driven, huh, by improved gross margins. 
On the earnings call Wednesday night, executives chatted through the numbers, although the call was notably drier than in quarters past. Elon Musk didn't speak. In the face of the semiconductor chip shortage and other global supply chain issues, Tesla still managed to deliver about 73% more cars than it did during the same period a year ago. It's pretty good, right? Well, despite all that, Tesla shares were trading lower after the report. Here's Becky. Let's bring in John McNeil. He's the CEO of DVX Ventures and former president of Tesla. He also sits on many boards, including Lululemon, and he's also the former chief operating officer at Lyft. And John, welcome. It's um, really great to have you here as a first time uh, guest on Squawk. You are somebody who, when you're listening to what's happening on the call, probably has a much better idea than just about anybody else about what matters, what's important and uh, where the key points are. What, what did you think about the company's results yesterday? Hi, Becky. Thanks for having me. I, um, I I was impressed on a couple of things. For years, Tesla has been a survival story, and it's clearly not a survival story now. It's emerging as a scaling competitor as they approach a million cars annually uh, sold and delivered. Uh, but I think what was most impressive to me is the gross margins. The gross margins uh, are approaching 30%. Just to put that in perspective, that is three times the gross margin level at GM and, and about six times the gross margin level at Ford. And they seem to be less affected by supply chain issues, and they are because they control their own uh, destiny largely on their chips. So they are, you know, their sales, as you said, were up seventy more than seventy percent year over year, versus uh, GM and Ford, which are which are seeing declines of, uh, of around thirty percent year over year. So I think there was a lot to be impressed with, and uh, and they're sitting now in sixteen billion dollars of cash. So they are they're emerging as a formidable competitor. Yeah, John, I, it, it seemed like they hit on just about every metric and, and surprised to the upside on a lot of them. I, I was a little surprised by the stock's performance down by about 1%. Is that just because people have priced all of this in, the stock has run so much, and they kind of expect perfection at this point? I think a lot of that was priced in. I think you're right. But one of the surprising things was that they are uh, that they are taking price and uh, in, in increasing prices. They're They're showing that with their demand, uh, which they're now building, you know, monthly, multi-month backlogs uh, that they're able to take uh, price increases. So that helps them absorb uh, any increases they're seeing in, in input for commodities and other supply chain shocks. And I think that is uh, uh, that is one aspect that I wasn't expecting, quite frankly, is their ability to uh, to extract price in this market. When you have customers who are willing to sign up and wait for months and months potentially to, to get the product, I, I don't know how long that lasts. You, you think that they need to do more to, to ramp up production in order to meet that demand, right? I think that is a key headwind is production capacity. And they talked about that in the earnings call and were, I think, pretty straightforward uh, and transparent about that. They've for years been a single factory company in Fremont, California. Uh, Shanghai is now online uh, and they've proven they can open more than one factory now and, and produce at volume. Shanghai is actually producing so much volume, they're exporting uh, back to North America. And they've got two more factories coming online over the uh, over the coming months, uh, one in Austin, Texas, and one in Berlin. And so I think that the thing to keep an eye on here is their ability to increase the production capacity to meet demand. Hey, John, it's Brian Sullivan. I know we talk about Tesla all the time as Tesla, and they're changing their battery technology that might increase margins as well, going to a lithium iron phosphate. But outside of that, outside of that, let's talk about Rivian, the F-150 Lightning, the Lucid, the Mercedes EQ, the Audi e-tron, the e-pace from Jaguar. Is there any real competitive threat to Tesla's EV dominance right now? 
It's a great question, Brian. I think what the what the competition does is it opens more eyes to EVs. Uh, and right now, you know, Tesla's got a dominant share in the U.S. They're 65% market share in the U.S., 21% worldwide. But I think that's in the context of, uh, of Tesla only having 1% market share in the global car market uh, and uh, EVs only having 4% market share. So if you consider, you know, EVs uh, going to potentially 50% of cars sold, that's already happening in nations around the world. Switzerland uh, just last quarter reported that more than 50% of cars sold there were either electric or hybrid. Um, that 4% has the, has the ability to grow 15 to 25 times. So I think we're at the very early innings of market growth. And as the market grows, even if Tesla's share shrinks, their gross volume is going to increase. And so I think we're at uh, we're at the beginning of what will be a multi-decade growth story for electric vehicles around the world. Hey, John, very quickly, the administration has kind of picked some new winners, and, and Tesla is not among them. They, they're kind of collaborating with union-based produ- producers for for manufacturing, and that's created some tension, especially with Elon Musk. Um, the big question that always comes back to is when can this company actually make money when you don't consider the emissions credits that they get? What do you think the answer is to that? Well, I think that's a it's a good question. And they, they actually proved that this quarter and last. So they, they've shown that the emissions credits are worth about one point of gross margin. Uh, and so they're they're now making money uh, and making significant money uh, at, at the core business, which is uh, which is the car business. A couple of cards they have up their sleeve is rather than selling a car uh, once and only making that gross margin once, they're turning these cars into recurring revenue uh, machines. And so they talked a lot about insurance yesterday, about autopilot subscriptions. Uh, They are rather than making a couple of thousand dollars when they sell the car once, they're going to make a couple of thousand dollars every year that that car is owned uh, by selling insurance and infotainment. Uh, and autonomy. So those gross margins are going to continue to expand because those are largely software-like gross margins. John, you're the, the former president of Tesla. Obviously, you sound like a fan, but you're not an investor now, right? Why not? I, uh, I'm not an investor now. I am a big fan and I, uh, I drive Teslas, uh, but the stock, I think, is priced to perfection right now. Uh, and, um, uh, and I, but at the same time, I would not bet against the Tesla team. John, thank you. We really appreciate having you, and uh, we'll have you back again soon. Great to see you. Thanks, Becky. That's the show for today. Thanks for sticking with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin, weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, listen and follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends, your colleagues, whoever. We really appreciate the love. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.